The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Kent Blasey is first and foremost known as a songwriter. He's also a singer, guitarist, performing and recording artist. The songs of Kent Blasey have been recorded by many prominent artists, particularly in the country genre, Kenny Chesney, Terry Clark, Clay Walker, Patti Loveless, Gary Morris, Reba McIntyre, and Garth Brooks, just to name a few. But even beyond country, artists like Barry Manilow and Engelbert Humperdinck. So, Kent Blasey, how are you, sir? Well, that was a great introduction. I think I need you to travel around with me. <laughs> I can even do like a, a, a Howard Cosell thing. <laughs> I like that. I'm doing good. I'm getting ready to go do a show at the Bluebird this afternoon and then heading to France to play Monday. So life is good. So have you played France before? I have not. I've played England and Ireland, but I've never been over to France to play music. Is there a community there of people who like American country music? I think there is. I don't think their idea of American country music and what's on American country radio music is anywhere near each other these days. But, um, yeah, you know, they they tend to like uh, maybe the older stuff. You know, Johnny Cash is big all over the world. Um, people like that, you know, Loretta Lynn, that kind of thing is still what they equate with that. Uh, it's just due to the radio stations that are over there and what they play and what people are used to from hearing American music or American TV or things like that. On that note, what do you think about country music radio today? Um, it's, uh, it's very disappointing. It's uh, the same songs over and over again. You know, it used to be we had top 40 radio, country, pop, rock, whatever. They were all uh, top 40. But now it's if you're not in the top 10 or 15, you don't really get played on the radio. And um, so you have basically the same 10 songs being played over and over and over again till they're pounded into your psyche. And hopefully you love them because you're so sick of them. Uh, we also have been in this bro country phase for nine years now, which to me has really diluted the quality of songs. Uh, it's diluted the chord changes that people use. Pretty much everything's uh, the same four chords. It's just, it's very disappointing. There's not those songs that make you pull over to the side of the road and, and uh, go, damn, I wish I'd written that song or bring you to tears or something like that. It's um, it's not like it was in the 90s where there were just great songs after great songs. Right now, it's kind of just a throwaway list of songs to me. But, you know, other people would totally disagree with me, so that's fine. <laughs> well, on the note of, of quality and of meaning of what you do, you're mentioning like, and I had, I would kind of agree that a lot of the songs, they just don't have a lot of meaning to me personally. So what would you say has always been the purpose in the art that you are creating? Well, to me, the, the songs that I love from the time I was a kid 
moved me in one way or another. They either made me appreciate life more, made made me laugh, made me cry, uh, made me think about things, look at things from a different angle. And those are the kind of songs that I always chose to aim to write. And when I came to town, there was a lot of that going on. And in the 90s, to me, it really blossomed when you had amazing songwriters like Hugh Prestwood and, and Skip Ewing and Gary Burr and things like that. And um, these days, those guys can't get anything basically recorded because it's a whole different world that's aimed at a different demographic of what country music's perceived to be, which is 12 to 32-year-olds. Not that anybody needs to be singing about prison or anything like that, but it's just a different world of what you can write about, what you can sing about. They don't want you being married. They don't want you being divorced. They don't want you to have kids. It's all about party, party, party. And, you know, it's okay to have some of that, but where's the real life that country music truly has always been singing about the working man and uh, the plight of the working man and woman and, and just uh, living life. And I, I don't get that anymore. Take us back to your, your earliest musical loves. Who were the singers okay. and bands that, that resonated the most with you? You know, I was very fortunate to grow up in kind of the mid '60s, so I think you can basically pick any of the groups that were big at that time that had a major influence on me. I mean, Dylan, especially the Birds, the Beatles, Buffalo Springfield, uh, Rolling Stones, Yardbirds, um, Jimi Hendrix, The Cream, Eric Clapton. There was just a diversity of amazing artists that had the freedom to do what they were hearing in their head without anybody telling them they couldn't do it or it's not, you know, it's not going to sell or anything like that. So if you look at that time period from like 64 to maybe even 74 or something like that, the music was so diverse and so phenomenal. And um, you had so many creative people out there doing different things, exploring boundaries that, you know, people still kind of wonder how Hendrix did some of the things he did. And it's that kind of thing that I see is really missing now. It's all kind of copycat stuff. And there's not the ability for the artist to really stand out much. I mean, you have like a Jack White or you have a Jason Isbell or something like that that can break through. But it's not anywhere near as prevalent as it was back then. I was reading about the time that you spent in the 70s performing with the legendary Ian Tyson. Yes. I'm hoping you can maybe share a couple of your memories from that time and what that experience taught you. Well, you know, Ian, to me, and I think there's other people that would label him this, probably along with Gordon Lightfoot, but they are like the Bob Dylan of Canada. You know, great, great songwriters, great performers have had some amazing songs that a lot of other people have had recorded and had hits on. And so you, you were coming in to work with Ian and I was his band leader and he was just a total professional, you know, willing to, willing to share his craft. He was very, very encouraging to me as a songwriter. He let my band open up for him and we would do original songs of mine. And he even went so far as he was talking about opening up a publishing company in Nashville to pitch my songs. So 
his belief in me, it's like, wow, if Ian Tyson thinks I'm doing something good, I must have something. And it's that kind of thing that keeps you going. Um, he was just a, a, a great role model. Tell us about the events and what was going on internally with you when you decided my specific thing, what I want to focus in on is songwriting. Well, you know, it was like an apex of things. I had been playing with Ian for a couple of years and basically living up in Canada, which I loved. He was based out of Toronto at first, and then uh, the whole organization went to Alberta out in Calgary, and, and that was a great place. I had a great band of people that were from Calgary. They were really good friends of mine. And uh, But I was just gone all the time, and so I was trying to keep a relationship going at the time. And then when I was up there recording an album with Ian, my mom died kind of unexpectedly. So here I was 3000 miles away. And, um, I just kind of got tired of being out on the road and being so far away. And so Ian had been encouraging me about Nashville. And then I had some really good friends who were in the group exile and they were having some pop hits at the time. And when I was back in Lexington, Kentucky, where they were based out of, I was visiting with uh, Sonny LaMare, and they had a new guy in the band by the name of Mark Gray. And he had Mark come over to the house, and Mark played me some songs that he'd written. And Mark was just a phenomenal songwriter, singer. And so Sonny said, well, play, play Mark some of your stuff. So I played Mark some songs, and Mark really liked what I was doing. He was living in Nashville, and so he was very encouraging about going to Nashville too. So it was just, here's two people that I thought were phenomenal talents believing in me. So I thought, well, I think it's time to go to Nashville and just be a songwriter and get off of the road. So I did. If you're a songwriter, how important is optimism? Optimism? Yeah. Where well, is it? Let me put it this way. Dean Dillon, one time they asked him about his success and, you know, he's had so many George Strait songs. Uh, he, his answer was probably out of every 600 songs I write, I get six cut. And that's coming from Dean Dillon. So if you're not an optimist, if you don't think your songs are going to get recorded, if you don't think you have what it takes, you're not going to make it anywhere really i mean you've got to be optimistic in the face of overwhelming odds i mean i tell everybody who comes to nashville that i work with these young kids you kind of have to be crazy to do it and that's not an insult that's just a fact that you think you're going to come to town and be the next garth brooks or be the next bobby braddock or whatever you got to really be optimistic that that's going to happen otherwise you're going to stay home <laughs> so you know, people say maybe I'm overly optimistic, but hey, it beats being pessimistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, who was the first recording artist to cut a Kent Blasey song? Well, it's it was kind of interesting. Um, I had been in town, I don't know, maybe six months or eight months, and, and I'd met a guy by the name of Jim Dowell who had a publishing company, and he was a writer. And he hired me to be his tape copy guy. 
and also to play guitar on his stuff on the demos he was doing and all that and and to write with me and so uh he ended up signing me to a publishing company and i think like in about two weeks i had six or seven songs recorded and um i can't really remember who the first person was that recorded it but i had uh i think gary morris cut one and he ended up taking that to a top five record with Headed for a Heartache. But Donna Fargo cut one, uh, Mo Bandy, Exile cut something, uh, a woman by the name of Judy Bailey, who was on Columbia, cut something. So all of a sudden, there was like an apex of, of six songs getting recorded in a two-week period. And it was pretty wild. And I thought, oh, this is easy. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. But that that was kind of it. So I don't know really who the first person was, because it all kind of happened around the same time. What does it feel like the first time you're driving down the road, or you're in a diner, whatever, and you start hearing a song on the radio the first time, and you think, hey, is that my song? It is. It's uh, probably the most uh, amazing feeling you can have. Um, I still remember... When they told me Gary Morse's song was going to be a single and driving down the road and hearing it come on, and I basically just had to pull over to the side of the road and drink it all in, that this is actually happening. Somebody has recorded my song, and it's on the radio. It's getting played. And then just to have other people calling you from around the country saying, hey, I heard your song, and it's getting recorded. And it's, it's like, okay, this is what I've aimed my whole life for, and here it is happening. Who was the first major artist to record a Kent Blasey song? Well, I would say at that time, Gary Morris was the first major artist. He was on Warner Brothers, and he'd had a single out that had maybe gone into the 20s or something like that. So we had his second single, and like I said, it ended up going to number five on the charts, which was pretty amazing. And about the same time, though... um, you know, Exile cut a song of mine, and I think they were on like Warner Brothers or something at the same time. So it was right about that same time period both of those people did. But I would probably say Gary was the first person. And I, I guess our song, Headed for a Heartache, basically started his career because after that, he had number one after number one for uh, a few years. So I think we kind of got him going with that song. You prefer to write with another writer versus writing solo, correct? Nope. I I like it every which way. In fact, the last record that I did, which was called 66, I basically wrote about every song on that record by myself. Um, I think I wrote one with Leslie Satcher and one with Corey Batten, and basically the rest of them I wrote. And then on the album before that, New Songs from Old Guitars, I wrote probably eight out of the 12 songs by myself on that one. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I love writing with other people. I've got, like, Corey Batten, he and I have written together basically every Thursday for probably almost 15 years now, which is very unusual in this town. But I love the input of other writers. I love the camaraderie yet in the last couple of years where country music has swung to what I want to write and what I want to say has no relationship to country radio. So I really don't want to 
waste any co-writers' times by writing a song with them that they don't really want to write. So I've basically been writing them by myself and having a great time doing that. And, you know, I kind of started out writing by myself because being a songwriter in Lexington, Kentucky was kind of like, you know, nobody could understand exactly what that was at the time. And then you start meeting co-writers. And I I started co-writing before I came to Nashville just because I knew they did co-write in Nashville and I wanted to see what it was about and learn everything I could about how you deal with other people. But at the heart of it, I just love doing both. I like writing by myself and I like writing with co-writers, but it's not like it's one or the other. Whether you're writing by yourself or with someone else, is there a kind of environment or an atmosphere that you try to set? Yeah, I basically have people come to the house here. I've got a a writing room and I've got all kinds of different instruments that people can use. And I just aim to make it a joyful experience, you know, a fun experience, having fun. And um, it seems usually fix some lunch so we don't have to go anywhere and break the vibe of what's happening. And a lot of people like that. And just trying to make it uh, as comfortable as possible. And limeade or lime with certain people. <laughs> what do you look for in a co-writer? Somebody who brings something different than what I have. I also look for somebody who's inventive Uh, The other thing that I really like in co-writers is somebody who brings some ideas in and has an idea what they want to write and what they want to say and um, let me be able to embellish that. And I think that's what Corey Batten and I have so much fun at. He is just a great creator. And then a lot of times I just come in and, and tell him, well, I would do this or I would do that or, you know, change this around. And that's kind of how we work. So it's just somebody who like Kim Williams used to say, you can flow with them, you know, where it it seems like it's an easy, fun time to write. That's when it seems like to me, the best songs come out when you're not struggling with it, when you're not trying to work on on an idea that nobody likes or nobody's excited about. And so I, I just aim to find those people that I have that excitement with, I have that joy with and camaraderie with. This might be putting you on the spot, but do you have a favorite co-writer? You know, I have I have a handful of them. I mean, Corey is one of my favorite. Of course, Garth Brooks is one of my favorite. And, you know, to me, they're a lot alike because they come in and they kind of know what they want to want to say or what they want to write. And they're always, you know, two or three steps ahead of, of everybody else. And that always makes it fun. You know, you got to be on your toes and keep up with them. Those are probably my two favorite people, but there's so many great writers that I've gotten to write with, and um, Nashville's full of them, and it's just finding the ones that you really resonate with and have a chemistry with. Now, you just mentioned Garth Brooks. The first time that you encountered Garth, what did you think of him? Well... You know, it's an interesting time for me because I had a recording studio and I was working with a lot of artists at the time who were trying to get record deals. And back in in that time frame in Nashville, people who were trying to get a record deal kind of worked their way through the system by being a demo singer 
hopefully somebody would hear them from a label when you were pitching them a song and go, well, who's singing that or whatever. And so I met Garth under the pretense that he wanted to be a demo singer. I think he was cleaning churches and selling boots at the time and knew he could make more money as a demo singer, which was true. And um, so he came over with a cassette and played me six songs that he had sung. And I really liked what I heard. And I started using him as a demo singer and we started writing together. But, you know, the first day he came in, it was pretty funny because I think he was kind of straight from Oklahoma and he had a big cowboy hat on and he had a really long duster on. I don't know if, you know, he always wore ropers, which were kind of, um, not high heeled cowboy boots, but for some reason he looked like he was seven feet tall to me when I met him. And I think it was just what he was wearing, but we hit it off right away. I mean, he's just the nicest guy in the world. And, uh, we became good friends and it's one of those things where he's been very loyal ever since, you know, and every time something comes up, he's given me a call about doing something. And that's very unusual in this business too, but we just, we kind of hit it off right from the very beginning. And it's, it's stayed that way. Kind of like Corey and I. The song that it's Kent Blasey, Garth Brooks co-write, If Tomorrow Never Comes from the first album, Garth Brooks. I've always thought that the indication of a really fantastic song is when people outside of a genre want to sing it, like Engelbert Humperdinck and Barry Manilow. And there was another guy, Ronan Keating, in uh, England, who was with a, a group, maybe Boys to Men or First first something, I forget what he was, but he was a solo artist for a while. He ended up having the biggest hit on If Tomorrow Never Comes, bigger than Garth's even, because it was kind of a worldwide hit in all the English-speaking countries. So, yeah, that was that was kind of the, the coolest, biggest compliment. I mean, Barry Manilow's a great writer, a great singer, amazing artist, and the same with uh, Humperdinck. But for Ronan Keating, what was really cool was I was over in Ireland touring with some of the Garth guys when that record came out. And um, it was Pat Alger, Tony Arata, Kim Williams and I. And people kept telling me this guy, Ronan Keating, had cut the song. And of course, I had no idea who he was. But while we were over there, the song went number one in England and number one in Ireland. And to be there when that happened was really a, a cool event. You know, we were only there for two weeks, and that's when it all happened. And it made me aware of what was really going on outside of America, that people would love a country song, even if it was just kind of changed around a little bit. When you had uh, created the demo or when you were writing it, was there any indication or any kind of feeling from you, hey, this song could be just a great success? Yeah, I really felt that way when we wrote it. It was just something different. It had uh, something in it that I'd wanted to say a long time that my mother used to tell me about, tell the people you love, how you feel about them while they're still alive. And um, it was just fun writing with Garth and seeing where he would take it. And I always say he was 25 years old, but more like 50 years old when we wrote that song, because he had a depth about him that a lot of 25 year olds, I don't think could have written that song, but, uh, he just came in and he, he knew what he wanted to say. And, and at the end of the writing session, he did a guitar vocal at my house, which was a great guitar vocal. And, um, we thought we'd written something really good. 
and we pitched it around town for probably a year or so and nobody was interested in it. So we had actually scheduled a time to get together to rewrite the song. It's like, well, maybe we missed it somewhere along the way. And about that same time, he got a call to come play at the Bluebird. Some An artist who was doing a showcase didn't show up. So they asked Garth to come sing one song. He sang that uh, If Tomorrow Never Comes as his one song. And somebody from Capitol Records who'd passed on him for the third time that week heard something and said, hey, maybe we missed something. Come back in. He went back in, got a record deal. And it was his second single. And it was our first number one song together. So it's pretty cool how that all happened. And I was just so honored that it was Garth who ended up being able to uh, sing the song because when we wrote it, you know, he didn't have a record deal or anything like that. He was just struggling like everybody else was. Hmm. Wow. Now there's a kind of more, a little bit more obscure Garth Brooks song that I I'm wondering just for my own personal curiosity. And that's the duet that he did with George Jones, the beer right. run song. How did that come about? Well, Tim Williams' daughter, Amanda Williams, is a really great songwriter. And she had written a song with Kim and another guy called Beer Run. And Kim had pitched it to Garth. And Garth will do this sometimes. He's like, well, you know, the song doesn't really hit me, but I love the idea. Can I work on it with, uh, with your dad and with Kent? And so we came in and... You know, I didn't even know how the other song went, but we just kind of started writing a whole different song. And Garth at the time, a lot of times he has a vision on where he wants something to go. And he said, I want to write this where I can do a duet with George Jones. And I'm like, well, I'm into that. (laughs) So we just we wrote it. I'm from Kentucky, which where I grew up, there were a lot of dry counties around there. So I kind of knew what a beer run was because everybody was always having to go to other towns and other counties to buy beer. So we just kind of laughed about what it was like. And, you know, the, the thing about Garth is here it was, uh, I don't know, a couple months later, he called me up and said, well, George Jones and I cut the song and it's coming out as a single. Um, it came out as a single on a Monday, and I believe that was the same day the 9-11 happened. And so Garth pulled the single. He didn't want that kind of joyful fun song being out in the middle of what was going on with uh, the whole world trade center and all that stuff. So the song came in at number 20 on the charts. It was there one week and that was it. Hmm. Sometimes a songwriter is surprised by an interpretation that a singer does of their song. What would you say is the song of yours that you were most surprised by the recording, by the interpretation Wow, that's a that's an interesting interesting question. I think um, one of the most fun things that happened was I wrote a song that Reba McIntyre cut called "All the Women I Am," and we had done a really good demo on it. But when she went in and did it, it was just so phenomenal to see what they had done with that record and hear Reba's voice on it that it just took it to a whole nother level. And that's what you always is going to hopeful when you have a song recorded is that the artist will hear it and be able to take it to a whole different place. And I think that was 
Dan Huff on that, but it was just a phenomenal record. Uh, it was the title of her album, the title of her tour, and the title of her Country Music Hall of Fame exhibit, but it was never a single. Hmm. That's you, what I said. Hmm. <laughs> Do you think that there are any misconceptions about you? Oh, I'm sure there are. You know, um, the one thing that I've heard from people is they say, well, you have no style. And uh, I guess, you know, they're equating me to, say, Skip Ewing, who has an amazing style, or Hugh Prestwood, or something like that. And, you know, I can't say it bothers me. It's more like I grew up with AM radio, where I could hear everything from Roger Miller and Tammy Wynette to the Beatles to Motown to Frank Sinatra. So there's not a style in that it's kind of all over the place and I'm just a, a lover of music. So I, I don't, I don't aim to have a style. I just aim to, to write whatever I love to write, whether it's, you know, more rock, more country, more ballad, more up tempo, whatever, and not, you know, not try to be a stylist or bring my style to another writing appointment with somebody else who's got their style. It's like, let's just uh, mesh it together and weave it into a great tapestry. And, and so that, you know, that's kind of funny when people tell me that. And then, you know, it's funny too, with Garth stuff, I've had people come up and tell me, well, you know, Garth is really the one that writes all the songs. I know you don't really do it. Or I've had the opposite. Well, I know you wrote all the song. I know Garth's not really that good of a writer. So it's just all these preconceived notions of what things are, but you know, whatever it is, I have no control over it. So let them say what they want and I'll do what I do. You know, it seems like, especially if you listen to the, the Sirius XM station, the Garth channel, the thing that's most evident is this is a guy who just loves every type of music, you know? Yes, he does. And that's why he became my favorite demo singer to use because he could sing everything from bluegrass to rock and roll and you know he kind of i don't know if you ever saw his show in vegas or watched it when it was on tv but you know he grew up kind of like i did where it started with uh you know his dad listening to country radio but then he had older brothers and sisters that were bringing in all kind of music to the house so he grew up on everything and he loves everything and he can do everything and that's that's kind of what i like i don't like to have any boundaries on what you have to write or what you can't write or anything like that. And um, that to me is the fun part of it. And that's why it's so sad right now to me that country music is in a thing where it's basically four chords with the same beat on almost every song where they can mash six or eight songs together and you can't tell the difference between them. Yeah. What is the best thing about being Kent Blazy? <laughs> Oh, there's a million things. I mean, just to be able to uh, make a living at what I love, which, you know, it's songwriting, it's performing, like you said, it's being able to play guitar. I love playing electric guitar. I've really been an electric guitar player more than an acoustic player the whole time I've been playing. And just that I get to do that every day, you know, I get to write with people that I have fun with. I get to go out and play like today. The thing at the Bluebird is uh, Corey Batten and Karen Rochelle, two of my favorite people. And just to get to make music with them and, uh, you know, wake up every day and 
and go, man, I might write a song today that changes the world. So how's it get better than that? <laughs> I always like to, at the at the end of my interviews, just give the guest, give the artist the stage. Let them take the microphone and go wherever they want to go. Very open-ended. What would you say to our listening audience? Well, I would say thanks for listening, for one thing, because if we didn't have them, we probably couldn't make a living making music or, or doing interviews or anything like that. You know, it takes a, a call and response, like just the same with playing gigs. If you play a gig and the audience is an amazing gig, you're just going to give that much more back. So it's that, that love between you and, and the listeners that make it all worthwhile. And, uh, you know, I'm always in gratitude for the people that come to the shows or the people that buy the records or the people that listen to the songs and, and appreciate them. And, um, you know, without them, where would we be? Anyone out there, if you want more information, you can go to kentblazy.com, and Blazy is spelled B-L-A-Z-Y, kentblazy.com. Correct. You can go to CD Baby, cdbaby.com, and order CDs or iTunes. I'm, all my stuff's on iTunes if they want to hear more. Absolutely. And and they can uh, get to the CD Baby page from kentblazy.com, and they can also check okay. out your Facebook page. Yeah, now I can't say I, I look at that very often, but I've got somebody who every once in a while does something for me on it. <laughs> I just can't seem to keep up with Facebook, so between everything else that's going on. But uh, I've got somebody who kind of posts stuff once in a while, so yeah, go there too. My last question, who is Kent Blazy? I believe Kent Blazy is... A lot of different things. Um, you know, I bought from the time I was a little kid, I loved music. I grew up in Woodstock, New York, which was at the time, way before it was famous for the pop festival, which didn't really happen there, or Bob Dylan living there, which he did. It was an artist community. So even at an early age, I would go to somebody's house and they would maybe be working on a huge painting or somebody would have written a book and they'd say, hey, I wrote this book, let me autograph it for you. There were a lot of actors that came up from New York City that came there to get away. And so I was meeting all these people that were making a living being creative. And I think that put a stamp on me from the time I was a kid that, wow, how cool would it be to do something creative, like be an artist or, or be a writer or something like that. So I think that formed from a very early age who I was as far as wanting to, to make a living being a creative person. I also feel like uh, since I've come in, I've been on a, a spiritual, uh, not necessarily a journey, but just learning of who I am and who the universe is and how it all works together. And I think I've come to a place where I just wake up every day being joyful for the life I have and the amazing things that I've been a part of that have been created and know that I had a choice in choosing all this to make it happen. Well, Mr. Blasey, thank you very much for letting us in. Well, thank you too. I appreciate thanks for, it. Uh, thanks for keep uh, knocking on my email. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed it. Same here. Thank you for the great questions and 
just please keep in touch and let's do some more. Absolutely. Until next time. I look forward to it. Okay, <laughs> and thanks. Have, have fun in France. We. Oui. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>